Welcome back to You Ask For It. It's a podcast where Pastor Steve and myself walk through sometimes questions that you send in about faith and in life or the scriptures. But right now, if you've been with us, you know that we are walking through a series on the Apostles' Creed. And right now we are at the point where we're talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. And we're going to preface this part, um, this discussion today around this question. Why did Jesus have to die? That's our, that's what we're going to focus on today. Why did Jesus have to die? Let me kind of introduce it this way. In 1993, there was a conference that was, that was, um, held and paid for by the PCUSA and the United Methodist Church. And it was called the Reimagining God Conference. And it was dedicated to Christian feminism and featured worshiping God with a female name, Sophia. Uh, they replaced the communion elements with a service of milk and honey to remember the role of women in fertility. And this is one of the quotes from the main, one of the main speakers, Dr. Dolores Williams. She said this, I don't think we need a theory of atonement, and I don't think we need folks hanging on crosses and blood dripping and weird stuff. That's a, that's a Methodist conference. Yes. And so the, the problem with this is the, when we look at the scriptures, which we're going to look mm. at today, it shows the picture of the cross mm. very differently. And we love it. Yes, absolutely. Now, let me contrast that with the words from a great hymn um, that, that you probably all know, uh, you know about the old rugged cross. And here's what it says. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down and I'll cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. You know, I, I can, I understand that this, this speaker said she was repulsed by the blood dripping and someone hanging on a cross. We, we love the cross. But what you've got to understand is the cross has been the central symbol of Christianity from the beginning. Uh, there's a fascinating book called The Cross of Christ written by John Stott many years ago. And in that book, he talks about the fact, a lot of times I've heard people say that the fish symbol was the secret symbol for Christians to identify each other. They would take their toe in the sand and do a fish because the Greek letters, ichthus, for fish, each one stands for Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. That's not true. The original signal of Christians from one to another was the sign of the cross, but it was different than what the Catholics do today. The Catholics do a very dramatic sign of the cross. But what they would do is they would take their thumb and they would put the sign of the cross on their forehead. It's almost like I'm scratching something. And that's how they would identify themselves to each other. But they used that constantly when they would go into a house. They would, may, may, I, may I honor him in this place? Or if they were having fears or thoughts, they would put the sign of the cross on their head. It eventually, in the Middle Ages, became something more drastic. And just for trivia's sake, did you know there's a difference between the way the Roman Catholics do the dramatic sign of the cross and the way the Orthodox Church does the sign of the cross? The Orthodox Church, which goes real big into symbols, has their fingers in this way. They take the bottom two fingers and put them against the palm with the other three joining each other, standing out. I'm describing this for those who are listening on podcast. And that represents this symbol with two down and then three up represents the Trinity, the three that are held together. And the other two represent the two natures of Christ. And then what the Orthodox does is it goes down and does the opposite direction. It starts with the top of the head, goes down, and then it goes from 
the right to the left and ends with the heart. So you've got two different ways it's being done. I, I know a lot of people sit here, be, we don't want to be Catholic, but folks, there's something I think beautiful yeah. about the sign of the cross mm. and recognizing that we're under the cross. We love that old cross. I think of Galatians 6.14. As for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. The world has been crucified to me through the cross and I to the world. Amen. We might ask this question, why do we need, why do we need the cross? Maybe that's a question that has to be asked today. Well, first of all, I think we all understand this, but let's make sure we, we bring it up. We have a sin problem and that sin separates us from God. Let me read you this from Isaiah 59. It says, indeed, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save and his ear is not too deaf to hear. Listen, but your iniquities are separating you from your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not listen. The cross was necessary because we are separated. And here's the thing. When you read the New Testament, every single New Testament writer, every single New Testament writer points to the cross as that which brings us back into communion with God. And you can understand that in the word atonement that is used. This word atonement is the theological word that describes how Christ's death brings about our forgiveness and being restored with him. Some people have separated the syllables to help you understand it of at one meant. You see that? At one meant. This how God made us one with him again. That is what the cross does. Now, what we'd like to do for about the rest of the time is talk about the three different theories or three views of the atonement. Now, many throughout history have disagreed about how the atonement should be applied or how it should be understood. And what we want to do is just kind of display each of these three views for you so you can kind of fully know where Christians have been throughout church history. The first one, the first theory or doctrine is moral influence theory. Let me read you a verse to help you understand this from 2 Corinthians 5. It says, For the love of Christ compels us. Since we have reached this conclusion that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. See, here's how this theory um, works. That we all, like sheep, were going astray, right? We were going our own way and then God comes and he showed us how much he loves us by being willing to go to the cross on our behalf. And in that, he proved his love for us by going to the cross for us. And so what that love has done is it's now won our hearts once once again and caused us to lay down our rebellion. So we were separated from our rebellion. And what this theory would say is that now his love has won us it back melted with our again. Hearts. Yeah, it melted it. Yeah. Let me, another hymn for you today to kind of, that really explains this theory comes from uh, the hymn, When I Survey. Maybe you know this one. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt in all my pride. Were this whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. My life, my soul, my all. Do you see that there, this kind of what yeah. he did for me then causes my... And, and I can see that being true. You know, when I look and see how he loved me that much, I want to love him back. It, it, it does have a magnetic power. Uh, I heard a story years ago from a teacher, and she said she had a student who was different than all the other students in the high school. Uh, he was serious about his studies. He was respectful. He, he took everything. He did everything with all of his heart. Now, you know, a lot of teenagers just slough off things. But that was his... So one day she came up to him and said... 
I just got to ask you a question. Why are you so different? And this is what he replied. He said, my mother died shortly after giving me birth. My father was able to take me and show me to my mom. And, and then he asked her, now, you're not going to be here, but is there anything you want me to tell this boy from his mom? And she said, tell him I died for him, so do his best. And that had changed the way he lived. So there's a sense in which that is a truth. The love of Christ compels us because we believe Christ died for all. But that's not enough. The more liberal denominations like to just camp out at this one saying, well, love won us over. It's all about love. But that, that doesn't deal with the depth of our sin problem. So probably the oldest view of the atonement, um, it's got many terms, but we're calling it the atonement as victory. And it uses the word ransom. Sometimes it's called the ransom theory. Let me give you a verse on ransom. There's two of them, but here's Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The picture is that the devil captured us and, and Jesus came and paid a ransom. His life was the ransom so that we'd be released from the devil's control. Uh, Leon Morris defined this better than I can. So let me read you his definition of the ransom theory. Because of their, their sin, people rightly belonged to Satan, the fathers reasoned. But God offered his son as a, ran a ransom, a bargain the evil one eagerly accepted. When, however, Satan got Christ down into hell, he found he couldn't hold him there. On the third day, Christ rose triumphant and left Satan without either his original prisoners or the ransom he had accepted in their stead. Fooled him. Gave his life, but he couldn't keep him down. So when he rose, the devil was left with nothing. So that's kind of the ransom thing. I don't know anybody that would go with that particular Satan being baited type theory. But there is a sense in which Christ's death was a victory over the devil. Hebrews 2 says this, Now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. When he died, conquered death, he said, you don't have to be in chains to Satan because I'm stronger than death, and he set us free. Um, years ago, there was a group of Salvation Army folk going on a boat to go to do mission work. Uh, in the middle of the ocean, the boat began to sink. You know the story of the Titanic. Um, they, they just didn't have enough lifeboats, and they often didn't have enough life preservers on boats in that day and time. So they were people were passengers were being put on the boats. It got down to the end. There were the Salvation Workers, Salvation Army Workers, and there were the, the, the sailors on the boat. And they were saying, you take the last boat. And they said, no, no, you get in that last boat. And they said, we're better sailors than you. And then the Salvation Army Workers replied, but we die better than you. And that's what's happened since the cross is we've been freed from that fear of death. Now, there's one more theory that I would say is probably the one that most people um, I would say most common. center on, yeah, yes. center on, and that is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. And this this doctrine holds that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross took the place of punishment that we deserve because of our sins. That that on the cross, God's God's justice, the the wrath that was due us, was satisfied by the sacrifice of Jesus. And now, what that means is that all those who accept Christ. That Christ then stands in their place and we can be reconciled. Yeah, to him. He took our place. The nails yes. that should have gone in our hands went in his. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, we would argue that the scriptures affirm this very teaching. Yeah. Uh, Isaiah 53, we read this passage when we, um, two weeks ago. 
It says this, that he was pierced because of our, tra- our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned our own way and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Could you hold this up so I could, I'm going to have to use my hands for this next one. If you'll put the microphone in front of me. Um, James Kennedy and Evangelism Explosion has a way to illustrate how Jesus died in our place. It's called the hand illustration. There have been a few times in a sermon I've done this because it's one of the clearest explanations of how Jesus' death brought about our forgiveness. And for those who are listening on podcasts, you use both hands. The left hand you put with the palm up. The right hand you have over the, 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 the other hand, and you say this, the one on the bottom represents us. The one on the top represents God, and God loves us. He wants to bless us. He wants us to go to his heaven. But not only is God loving, he's also holy. And because he's holy, he can't just let sin go. Uh, So many times we treat him like he's a grandfather. I want you to know my grandkids get away with stuff my kids never got away with. It's all right. Y'all just eat that chocolate. You just watch your little, there's no screen time limits at our house. You just do that. Leave me alone. No. (laughs) So, so, uh, but God can't, he's holy which means sin has to be punished. So let's say that this book here was a record book of all my sins. I'd have to get a bigger book. But we'll put that book on top of the hand that represents me between me and God. And so because God is holy, he just can't let this go. He can't let me into his heaven as long as this sin stands between he and I. But that's where Jesus came in. He's the only one who never sinned, the only one who didn't deserve to die. Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've each turned to his own way. And then when Jesus went to the cross, it says the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. And he took our place so that now we're free to go to him and be forgiven. There's other verses that back this up. 1 Peter 3, verse 18, Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. Romans 5, 8, God proves his own love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So you can see how that substitutionary death is found throughout the New Testament and Old Testament too. Yeah. Now there are people who have problems with this theory and it's mainly centers around two, two reasons. The first reason, if we go back to how we started this, this podcast with this, we don't need something with all the blood and all of that. The problem with that argument is If you read the Bible, especially if you go back to the Old Testament, there is no atonement possible without the shedding of blood. That's right. It's impossible. And what you see in the Old Testament, I I was just reading yesterday morning with Titus, and we were reading the story of Moses in the um, Jesus Storybook Bible. And it was the story of the ten plagues, and it came to the Passover. And it was telling the story of how they had to slaughter the lamb and then write the blood on the Mm -hmm. doorpost of their house. And in that, it said that the the angel of death would pass over them. And so we were explaining, I was explaining that with Titus, and then it makes this transition that we see so often when we understand Jesus. Jesus is called the Lamb of God for us. 
that in the Old Testament, you see that the lamb was what was slaughtered so that sins could be atoned for. And what is Jesus? He is the lamb who was slaughtered for us so that our sins can be atoned for. That, it cost yeah. the blood of Jesus. Absolutely. You, you could not get atonement for sin without the blood. Also, we see in the New Testament that forgiveness and right standing with Jesus is only possible with the shedding of blood. So not only atonement, but just to be able to stand with him. Hebrews 9, 22. It says, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It's pretty clear right there. Yes. There is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. First Peter 1, verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now think about this. My salvation was so costly, it took the precious blood of Christ. And I think when we see how bloody the cross is, it reminds us how serious our sin is. It should be gross for us to look at. Yeah. Because we see it, absolutely. It's, it's a, a visible reminder. I worked in a department store years ago in Houston, and the guy that managed the sports department where I worked in had never been raised in church, didn't know anything about the Bible. Um, well, one day he brought his monthly subscription to Penthouse in to share with all the other workers. He says, come here, guys, look at this. And he, he knew I was a Christian, and I said, you know, I'm just, I can't do it. He said, hey, it's just looking. It's not sinful to look, is it? And I said, do you really want to know? And I pulled up my Bible and showed him Matthew 5, where it says to look on a woman with lust is the same as committing adultery. And he, he said, I'm going to hell. <laughs> and that's what happens. We get reminded of our sin when we see how bad that is. Now, the second reason why people have a hard time with substitutionary atonement is the concept of God's wrath. Um, one of my favorite hymns is In Christ Alone. The Presbyterian Church USA, they're the ones that helped sponsor that feminist conference, they in the Methodist Church. They were coming out with a new hymnal, and they wanted to include it, but they demanded that the Gettys make one word change. In, in that song, it says, On that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. They said, We're not going to print it unless you change it to these words. The love of God was magnified. They didn't want any mention of the wrath of God. They only wanted to talk about the love of God. But folks, the wrath of God is found not just in the Old Testament, it's in the New. In Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But you've got to know this. The wrath is not pointing at people, it's pointing at sin. And if I have the sin still attached to me, then I will experience the wrath of God. But if you go to the cross... Jesus is the shelter from the rain of God's wrath. I picture, I picture the cross. Some of you may be golfers. A lot of times they'll have a shed that's out in the middle of the course in case a thunderstorm happens so you can drive your cart under there and wait it out so that you won't get hit by lightning. I feel like the cross is even when the storm of God's wrath falls, I'll be under the shelter of the cross and it won't hit me because it hit Jesus. That's good. Now, we also need to say this, when people still have a hard time with understanding God being angry, we also know that God is a father. And we would say, look in our own life, if God did not get angry at sin, he would not truly be a loving That's father. Right. He wouldn't be. I mean, imagine this. Imagine you found out. Now, this is going to be a serious description, but sin is serious. Imagine you found out that your, that your child or someone you knew was being abused by a neighbor. 
You're not going to go over to their house and sing them love songs to get them to see what they've done wrong. No, no. What are you going to do? You're going to be angry. You're outraged at what has happened right there. Mm -hmm. So what do we expect God to feel when he sees our sin where we have made mistakes? But this is what is so good about the cross in that. God can have nothing to do with sin, but then when we see the cross of Christ and we see Jesus dying in our place, it means that that anger, that wrath that was due us is satisfied for, on Jesus' behalf for right. us. Now, we've mentioned three, three views. Yes. Moral influence. The love of God just melts our hearts. Mm. Christ is a ransom. He fooled the devil. Yeah. And then the substitutionary atonement. And we've had verses that we've quoted in all of them, which is right. We would say today that every one of them have merit, correct? All of them are right in some ways, correct? Right? Wouldn't you say that? Yes. Yes. We, we take from all of those because we find scriptural basis for every one of those positions. And then I think Leon Morris, which we've already pointed to before, we're going to let him sum it up to give his description. It says this. He says, above the, uh, all, the view, all the above views in their own way recognize that the atonement is vast and deep. There is nothing quite like it, and it must be understood in its own light. The plight of sinful man is disastrous, for the New Testament sees the sinner as lost, as suffering hell, as perishing, as cast into outer darkness and more. An atonement that rectifies all of this must necessarily be complex. So we need all the vivid concepts, redemption, propitiation, justification, and all the rest. And we need all the theories. Each draws attention to an important aspect of our salvation, and we dare not surrender any. But we are small-minded sinners, and the atonement is great and vast. We should not expect that our theories will ever explain it fully. Even when we put them all together, we will no more than begin to comprehend a little of the vastness of God's saving deed. Mm. We're grateful that our God is bigger than us, right? right? right. That we cannot put him into a little box. I hope this has been beneficial for you today, and I hope this has maybe caused you to just, in some ways, look at just... (laughs) the terribleness of our sin, but then also the beauty of what Christ has done for us. That's our hope for you today. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back with you in a couple of weeks as we'll continue our walk through the Apostles' Creed.